Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well, then you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is August 5th, 2020, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, as we did, uh, as we do always, actually, I have on my podcast my fellow analyst, Christian Ford. Christian, are you there? Yeah. How was your uh, vacation, Neil? That's true. Uh, we do have a, I can't remember how long it's been, uh, maybe two or three weeks since my last podcast. Right. I was actually out in uh, Arizona and California with my family, just, you know, checking out COVID-19, checking out those rising case <laughs> caseloads. I had a chance to go to Santa Monica and Venice to see the beach. Actually, I was born in Santa Monica, Christian. That's a little factoid you might not have known. I did not uh, know that. I am a child of California, yes. Um, and uh, and I, I hope everything has been okay in Maine. Oh, everything's good. It's been hot and humid, but doing well. Yeah, that's that wonderful eastern seaboard weather. Um, that's one yeah. aspect of being a Californian. I have not given up, by the way, so <laughs> trying to get away from the weather out here. Okay, as always, uh, if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about on this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged, which I put together with my team at Hedge Iris Management, including Christian. Uh, Google it and you'll find it. Among other things, you will be able to get our newswire, watch my show on COVID-19, uh, other special reports, uh, special interviews with guests, and so on. Um, speaking of guests, next Tuesday, I will be doing a live show with Hedgeye political analyst James T. Taylor, who knows just about everything that's going on in Capitol Hill. Uh, and this will be on the outlook for another stimulus package and for the uh, outlook as well for the 2020 election. We will attach the audio of that interview to our podcast next week. As usual, I, I, I always say this, we have a hopelessly ambitious agenda. Isn't that right? Uh, and That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to go through markets, uh, U.S. economic indicators, as well as around the world, uh, COVID-19 news and how that's been recently impacting the economy. Uh, not positively, I might add. Um, what's the uh, near-term outlook from here? We'll talk about that. Uh, the prospects for Stimulus 5. Uh, and what are some... I don't know, different ways the economy could go. Um, I think a lot of it is COVID-19 and stimulus. And we will talk about one option would be looking at rising inflation uh, expectation fears. Uh, and we're going to go talk a little bit about that. Then we're going to go global, uh, talk about the recent uh, forced marriage of TikTok. With, <laughs> I call that a shotgun marriage uh, that... Uh, that uh, I guess you could say Trump is holding the shotgun uh, with Microsoft. Uh, the five-hour congressional online grilling of the big tech titans. We're going to look at Russia, the uh, rebellion in Khabarovsk. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, and the uh, charges by the U.S. Space Command that Russia is testing a space-based anti-satellite weapon. Uh, in India, uh, the iPhone construction in Foxcroft is moving away from 
um, uh, Shanghai moving to India. Uh, that ought to make uh, Narendra Modi happy. Um, and Trump is removing troops from Germany. Um, wow, that's a well thought out sage move. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> what people think about it. The Libyan civil war uh, and how that's coming along. Uh, and finally, something on the new EU fiscal deal. Was it really a Hamiltonian moment for the European Union? Uh, all this uh, common assumption of debt. Uh, and finally, what's Italy going to do with the money it's going to get? And we're going to come around, as we often do, to the outlook for the 2020 election, looking a little bit at some of the early returns uh, in the Democratic primaries for the House <laughs> and some of the weirder uh, prospects for how this election might turn out. And, and finally, just to reinforce the weirdness of this, we'll, we'll talk about Kanye West uh, running for president. Uh, and if we have time, we will actually talk about serious demography. It's actually a long piece that I had in my recent newswire on a new projection published in Lancet, uh, which speeds up global population decline. Wow, I can, this is like a podcast just to talk about the podcast. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk quickly about markets and economic indicators, uh, Christian. All right, Neil. Well, from our last podcast, which was 15 trading days ago, the S&P 500 is up 2.5% and the global Dow is up 0.3%. As for volatility, the VIX is actually coming in at lower readings. Uh, yesterday, it closed at 2376 you remember last time we were around 28 and we've been in that high 20 range so it's actually getting closer down to what it normally is at which is the high teens you know 15 to 19. So volatility is coming down. Yeah I'm sure there's still an implied ball premium there but uh, you're you're right this is coming back into a weird normality uh, but you could say normality. Uh, what else right. is going on? All right, well, let's get into our U.S. indicators. We got the Michigan Consumer Sentiment for July, and that had a major drop. In June, it was reading at 78.1. For July, it came in at 72.5. This, If you want to know, back in April when it had its worst reading, it was 71.8. So it's not that far away about how people were feeling in the worst of the lockdown. Well, we, we've talked about rising pessimism in America. Uh, you don't right. you don't you don't see it in the stock market there. OK, um, yeah. uh, what else? Uh, we got an, our ISM manufacturing PMI for July, and that came in at fifty four point two, which is not bad. That was some growth. And that was the best performing products were actually food, beverages and tobacco. Uh, June was fifty two point six. So we're seeing steady growth there. Uh, market gave us a services PMI that is still below 50 for July. It came in at 49.6. That is six straight months. It's been below 50, Neil. Wow. Yeah. So right. um, we're not we're not getting that uh, that V yet. No, in, we're not uh, in services, which is most of our economy. Uh, and that's weird. You know, services was as we know for. Actually, most of the Trump presidency was uh, continuously doing better, uh, particularly in uh, late 2018, 2019, was certainly doing better. Um, okay, uh, anything else? Oh, the big news is uh, advanced GDP for the second quarter came out, and that was down 9.5% from the last quarter. If you annualize that, Neil, it was down 32.9%, a pretty yeah, big but... contraction. 
Yeah, we're not annualizing it anymore. That's yeah. that just you know that that gets kind of really uh, Get really yeah that gets confusing. <laughs> we're we're we're, we're going to be European and in, in how we uh, measure these things, right? Stick just with just our give 9. me 5. just give me quarterly yeah quarterly yeah. numbers. Um, all right, anything else? Well, I think at this point we should we got a lot of GDP from Europe, so I don't know how you yeah. feel about comparing them. Absolutely. Uh, so U.S. as I said down nine point five percent. Italy came down minus 12.4%. Germany, minus 10.1%. That was actually a bigger drop than was expected. They were expecting only around 9 to 8%. Uh, France, down 138 And the biggest was Spain, down 18.5% for quarter two. Yeah. Wow. That's breathtaking. Uh, and right. I think the – did you mention the Eurozone as a whole? The Eurozone as a whole is down 12.1%. Yeah, so significantly yeah. worse than the United States. Um, right. Well, uh, should I continue? Can I go on from here? Or do you have yeah, no, more go ahead. good go news? Right <laughs> you have more good cheer for us. So, um, I look, there's no question that Europe was harder hit uh, than the United States. Um, you know, they had that huge lockdown, uh, particularly Southern Europe in, in April, and they've locked down more. Uh, now, however, they're beginning to uh, reap the advantages of that. The new cases and deaths are now way lower throughout Western Europe uh, than they are in the United States. And it, it looks as though, although there are fears of a second wave in Europe, uh, particularly Spain, I think, remains a trouble spot. And some of the other European uh, countries are actually, you know, putting, um, you know, quarantine holds on people returning from Spain. That's currently an issue between Boris Johnson and and uh, uh, the Spanish uh, uh, government. Uh but but I think you can say that the the second wave that people are worried about in Europe is much smaller than what's going on in the United States. The problem with the United States is we didn't go down as much in terms of activity and uh, lockdown, uh, but we we haven't recovered either uh, significantly or nearly as significantly. We obviously did go way down in June, but now we're coming back to almost half of where we were in the worst of April uh, in terms of death rates. So that's really the issue. We see a lot of evidence. Uh, you just talked about the Consumer Confidence Survey, but particularly July is going to be a uh, is going to show a worsening. We're going to see a lot of this come out. I believe uh, on Friday we're going to get uh, the BLS coming out with the employment report, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that will reflect early June. That will reflect uh, the the second week. So we don't know what quite we're going to see in that. But I'm telling you that if you look at consumer confidence, if you look at new unemployment claims, which have been flat or rising weekly since July 4th, continuing claims, uh, July 10th, they were 16.1 million, and July 18th, there were 17 million. Uh, by the way, 17 million, uh, yeah. <laughs> the absolute peak in 2009 in, in that recession, the absolute peak uh, uh, weekly was 6.5. So we're at seven. We're at seventeen, and by the way, the total number of claims uh, of regular state uh, pandemic unemployment assistance, federal veterans extended—I mean, everything—is thirty point two million Americans who are wow. on some kind of employment relief. Uh, the one thing I track is the real-time population survey, uh, which is done mostly from Arizona State economists. Uh, it's uh, actually. Yeah, facilitated by the Dallas Fed. And they actually take BLS data and they actually give us 
every two weeks they give us a read. And that's actually very interesting because what they are saying is that if you look at uh, Americans age 18 to 64, the employment rate in early February, it was 63, uh, 73.8. So that's that's kind of normal, right? That was before COVID. In early May, when it hit its worst, it was 53, 55.3. So from 73 to 55, right? Early June, it was back up to 63.5, uh, but a bit down in late June, and now it's down in early July to 61.7. So it's now beginning to go back again. Uh, this this uh, mirrors, you know, the monthly readings mirrors the BLS, but what we get here is a, uh, a look at where it is in early, uh, in early July. The unemployment rate uh, hit a low in late June and is now rising, according to these weekly estimates. Uh, the impact on, again, on Friday's BLS release is going to be ambiguous, uh, maybe with a fall and then a rise, maybe not a change at all. I think uh, June, the unemployment number was 11.1. The consensus for July is 10.5, but it may not drop. It may be just coming again at 11.1, but the emphasis is it was probably lower in early July than it is in late July. So we're trending in the wrong direction. Uh, what's going on? Uh, well, COVID-19 is slowing the economy down. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, since over the last month, we've gone on a seven-day uh, average basis from 500 deaths a day to over 1,000 deaths a day. So we've roughly doubled our death toll. And that was inevitable, right? I mean, we talked about that. I've been talking, I don't know, Christian, how long? I think it was back in May we were talking about, yep. we're going to get into that situation. You're going to be seesawing back and forth. And every time the cases go down, we're going to open up again. Cases are going to go up. Then the death toll is going to go up. Then people will hunker down. And then finally, po policy is actually following public action. What a mess. Um, so that's where we are. Uh, what's the near-term outlook from here? That depends on COVID-19, uh, Could particularly what's going to happen when we get to the fall. Obviously, September, October, uh, is there going to be a worse second wave coming up? I think a lot of people are expecting a pattern that's going to, you know, or fearing that this could replicate the pattern of the Spanish influenza, which, as we know, had a a wave in the spring, but it had a horrible wave uh, in the fall of, uh, of 1918 and then had its third wave again in the spring of, um, of, 19, of 1919. And so that remains a fear how the pandemic is going to go. I think the other big issue is the stimulus. We now have stimulus five. This is the fifth bill under consideration. And we've gone off the cliff, right? Uh, as of July 31st, we're uh, off the cliff. All of those federal employment bonuses are ending. Uh, the, the, the PPP, I think, is no longer applicable, even if they still have money. Uh, the um, end of evictions and foreclosures on federally backed housing, that's ending. I mean, all this stuff is ending. So where do the two sides stand? Uh, well, as, as we all know, the you know, Trump administration and actually the GOP and the Senate has a $1 trillion continuation. And the uh, the HEROES Act uh, by the Democratic House is a $3.4 trillion, uh, basically continuation of everything through January, basically until Biden becomes president. I think that's their idea, right? <laughs> we're, we're just right. going to have a, a royal road or we're going to spend um, uh, God knows how much uh, percent of GDP that is. Uh, but I, I think you can you can figure it out. That's what is what is that? That must be 
six, seven percent more GDP. Okay, uh, the Republicans want a two hundred dollar uh, uh, per week uh, bonus, uh, federal bonus, uh, versus the six hundred, which is currently in place. The Democrats want to continue. McConnell wants liability protection for firms. He wants cash incentives for schools to open. It looks like schools are not most schools are not likely to open anyway. Uh, both sides are fine on the new household check, which is going to go to everybody. Obviously, um, Christian, the biggest stimulus would be effective control of COVID-19, right? <laughs> A little bit of national leadership, but that's not on the table, is it? All we can do is spend huge amounts of money while this thing rages on. Anyway, that's where we are. Uh, if my outlook right now is that if uh, COVID-19 worsens and the stimulus stalls, get ready for a stalling economy, uh, a further stall in the economy, uh, market turbulence and public anger, frankly. I, I think the public mood is going to get even worse than it is already, as we've been uh, you know, re relating all these uh, uh, survey numbers on this show. And now it's going to be really hurting, right? I mean, uh, the public is very pessimistic and, and very distraught. Uh, even though they weren't hurting, now they'll be hurting, right? So that is, that's kind of your negative outlook. The positive outlook would be COVID-19 gets milder. Um, nothing gets worse in the fall. A generous stimulus passes. I'm sure that the White House is, White House is really wishing that, uh, uh, I, I, think the, I think that the White House would be happy that the Republicans and Mitch McConnell just get behind the HEROES Act. Just say, Let's just go with all the money. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, we got an election coming up. Um, so if we get that, I think we have a very different situation. And I'm saying, uh, I'm pointing to a danger that I've talked about before on this show, and I think it's becoming more acute, and that is the possibility of rapidly rising inflation expectations. Uh, and that's kind of where I'm going to end on this. The dollar continues to fall. Uh, the dollar is now uh, $1.10 uh, per euro, as opposed to $1.18 per euro, uh, just two and a half months ago. Industrials, metals, and agricultural prices are uh, going up, particularly industrial metals. The CPI uh, actually started rebounding in June. It's June reading. Gold is up 18% since early May, obviously a, a early indicator of inflation pressure. The 10-year break even, uh, looking at tips, you know, the inflation-adjusted bond versus the nominal bond, uh, even that is up to 1.6%. Uh, that's what the markets are expecting in terms of 10-year of inflation. The five-year break-even is now 1.5%. This is basically what they were before the, before the pandemic, right? Nearly there, maybe, at, maybe you know, I don't know, five points, you know, five bips under that. Uh, but we're very close to that. Since mid-May, M2, our standard uh, measure of the monetary stock, year over year, is up by 23%. That is larger than anything we've seen since World War II. Um, and maybe matched, the only thing I can see, I took a long-term uh, look at that, maybe matched by a surge in 1944, which was the peak of America's total war. Uh, we were fighting, uh, we, we had forces around the globe, right? Uh, or probably, the, you know, that was certainly the most uh, concerted civic uh, activity in our nation's history. Otherwise, the otherwise it's the biggest since the Civil War. Uh, it was basically as long as we've been measuring it. 
Think of this. Total hours worked each month is down 11% uh, from February to June. But disposable personal income is up 5% in June over February. And retail sales are back up to where they were in February. Uh, I don't know. To me, I just look at that and I say, this is a potentially inflationary situation. Uh, the Fed is not only keeping interest rates low, but backstopping credit markets and capital markets. New bond issues and new equity issues uh, are up uh, over what they were last uh, same time last year. Uh, new equity issues are the highest since 2015 thus far. I mean, this is like a boom economy, right? Um, so... I, I don't know. I'm looking at that and I'm thinking this is a this is a strange situation. I was never an inflation hawk in 2009, 2010. Uh, I don't think that our stimulus, you know, our, our neither our fiscal stimulus nor our um, Fed additions to the to its balance were anything close to what they are today. I think now, given what's happening, given the mood, uh, given the political turmoil, the fact we have an election coming up, I think that's now a danger. Okay. Um, I think now we're going to pivot and go to global. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and I think start we with could, TikTok. Yeah, let's start with TikTok. It's kind of global. Uh, this was the this was the this was the shotgun marriage we're talking about. But um, ByteDance is a Chinese company. Last time I looked. Right. Yep. And so on uh, on Friday, Trump said he was banning TikTok. Now, there's been a lot of fears over the years that TikTok collects a lot of data and. Beijing and China probably has access to all of it. And as relations have been deteriorating over Hong Kong, Trump just said he's banning it. Well, on Sunday, it came out that apparently Microsoft is in talks to buy the U.S. portion of TikTok. I think it's the U.S., Canada, and Australia. Hmm. And Trump has said he won't ban TikTok if they can get the deal done by September 15th. And he's also added that he thinks the government should get some slice of the deal money-wise. He's a deal maker. You know, come on. Right. I mean, he part gets... Part of the deal. Yeah, he gets he gets a part of the deal. <laughs> He's also said, when people question him about that, he says, well, you know, the United States makes all this possible. So shouldn't we get... And he said, you know, any... Yeah, I think he really scared everyone. He said, any public company, you know, owes something to the fact that we make it... <laughs> I guess I guess that's government as protection racket. You know, we're, we're letting you... Uh, we're letting you operate. I... I actually, I think there is some justification in this case. I mean, if it's a highly profitable purchase, you might say, uh, well, you know, who should be, in other words, if it basically is a confiscation, uh, why should Microsoft or why should any American company be paying the Chinese the full price for it, right? Uh, right. You know, why, don't, why don't they pay the government and why doesn't the U.S. government pocket it rather than going to the Chinese uh, but anyway, this is, uh, uh, by the way, you haven't mentioned that the, uh, the, uh, the through their English language uh, paper, uh, the Beijing is, is, is outraged. I mean, they're calling this smash and grab, their confiscation. Of course, this is what China has been doing with American companies, right, for the last 20 years, you know, demanding all their intellectual property and making all kinds of sort of confiscatory measures so long as it's, uh, it remains somewhat profitable for the American company to do business. Uh, I think there's a little bit of a um, uh, uh, little bit of revenge here, a little bit of relief, maybe. Uh, it's interesting uh, to see this uh, to see this go down. Uh, I will say that um, 
Speaking of, uh, of digital companies, the, uh, there was a, a five-hour congressional online grilling uh, of the big titans last week. I think this was on July 29th, and they had everyone. I mean, the, this was the CEO of, uh, of Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook. Uh, Zuckerberg had the smoothest performance. I mean, he's had a lot of practice, right? <laughs> Be- Bezos, Jeff Bezos got heat for admitting he uses merchant data to develop his own products. I don't think he should have been, you know, there was plenty of uh, email evidence. He'd actually bragged about that. Uh, Sundar, uh, uh, Sundar Pichai probably did the worst. Not a lot of substance, but I think it sets a bipartisan tone uh, about where the American public is. And, and obviously in the background, the Justice Department, uh, the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department, the FTC investigations are underway. They're likely to lead to antitrust suits. Uh, if I were these companies and I'm sitting there thinking that Fangman, these are the 10, uh, the seven largest, or the, I'd say the seven most conspicuous tech companies are, I think, 24 to 5, 24-25% of the S&P 500 right now. They gained hugely as the S&P declined in April, and they still remain at that percentage. I don't think there's going to be a lot of sympathy uh, publicly for these companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a bigger tech dominance even than in 1999 and 2000 at the top of the tech bubble. Uh, Of course, very different names back then, with the exception perhaps of Microsoft. That's interesting. Uh, Still with us. But anyway, um, so let's move on to Russia. What do we see there? Yeah, well, if you remember, Neil, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Putin's poll numbers are actually the worst he's ever had. And there are these little stories of places of almost a little rebellion against Putin uh, in the far eastern city of Habarovsk, if I pronounce that correct. He arrested their governor on murder charges that are supposedly this murder happened like 15, 20 years ago. And for the last month, there has been protests of tens of thousands of people in the street calling for their governor to be released. And it's this governor is a very strange man. Um, He's actually his beliefs are very similar to Putin's. You know, most of Putin's political enemies are more liberal. They support the West. Uh, Sergei Forgel is his name. He is a hyper nationalist. He actually did, he kind of became governor by accident. They put his name on the ballot to make it look like there was an opposition party running. He didn't want to become governor. He, out of nowhere, won. And in the East, polls show that he is actually much more popular than Putin. So a lot of people think this was revenge and that Putin was feeling concerned more about someone who shares his same kind of beliefs. Well, you know, I... I I don't know what you think about that, Neil. I think in Russia... Uh, every leader except Putin is just assumed to have committed murder, some murder 10 years ago that he can be thrown in jail for. So right. <laughs> I think they got they got something on everybody. Um, do you want to talk at all about Belarus? Right. So weird situation in Belarus. Their president, Alexander Lashkenko, he is kind of a dictator. He's been there for 26 years. The elections are almost always rigged. Yeah, I'd say kind but of a dictator is... is- <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement. Anyway, go go ahead. <laughs> well, it's looking like on Sunday they have an election and he might actually lose. He's been very laxed about COVID and the public opinion is highly against him. And he has always been a good friend of Putin. But out of nowhere, he is now uh, 
his government arrested supposedly 33 Russian mercenaries that he claimed were sent to create chaos during the election. He says that Putin is supporting the other side and Putin is doing all these horrible things to Belarus. And this is very shocking because they've always been quite good friends. But I think he was reading the writing on the wall and he saw that Belarus actually wasn't supporting Russia as they used to. And he's completely changed his time. Wow. This is Belarus. This is Minsk nationalism. You know, I mean, uh, who would have thought? Right. Uh, that that one more piece of uh, Russia is suddenly just feeling its regional identity. Uh, so he wants to get the public to side with him for standing up against Putin. That's a pretty clever strategy. You think it'll work? Right. I I don't know. I he has arrested most of his opponents. Um, <laughs> there are people standing in for his uh, opponents. So I have a feeling he's probably going to win. Whether it was fair, who knows? Well, I have another interesting story out of uh, Russia. This is the U.S. Space Command uh, last week charged Russia with testing a space-based anti-satellite weapon. Uh, Something actually can follow one of our satellites and actually launch little projectiles. (laughs) And as expert at all different altitudes, you know, even the very fast ones at the low altitude. Uh, This is interesting the the space the u.s space command was created in 1985 it was merged into uh just u.s strategic command after 9-11 when we weren't really worrying you know we we're worrying about a lot of other things uh but then it was reestablished last year under under donald trump in august of last year uh and it was to take again uh, our we're fighting uh capabilities in space seriously again i think what 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 sparked that was the the fact that both you know China, Korea and Russia have all been increasingly vigorously pursuing uh, the use of uh, uh, aggressive technology in space. Uh, Russia actually set up an explicit space force back in 2015. They're experimenting with lasers and projectiles and and look, a lot of our economy depends on these satellites, right? For GPS communicate, I mean it's just our whole digital world depends on this. You can imagine you can truly cripple, a society, an economy, uh, and needless to say, its armed forces by interfering with all of this, um, all of this uh, space infrastructure. So this, I think, is a sign of how, you know, uh, the uh, geopolitics is spreading into new domains. I, I will say, as 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 kind of a weird, uh, I don't know, this may be off topic here, uh, but the Space Command happens to be our sixth armed service. Uh, and and it's formally now the the space command and and obviously the the service part of it is our our U.S. space force. It is co-equal with the Air Force uh, under the Secretary of Air Force when it's represented in the cabinet. So we have we have six of them: the 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 Army, the Navy, the uh, the Marines, the Air Force, the Coast Guard, and the Space Command. And here's another interesting thing, Christian. I learned recently. I was informed we have actually eight uniformed services. In America, that includes those six branches I just mentioned, and the Space mm-hmm. Command. By the way, they were a cool insignia. It's kind of like a lightning rod in space. I don't know. It looks like Buck <laughs> Rogers. But then but we have we have two other uniformed services. We have the um, uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, services of, of uh, Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and we have the U.S. Public Health Service. The U.S. Public Health Service is a uniformed service. You remember the Surgeon General. 
And, and actually, the Surgeon General has a uniform. He doesn't always wear it, but he can wear it. Uh, so here's what's interesting to me. Here's what just occurred to me as I was looking at this. Now, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about America's completely inadequate public health service, and mostly carried out by states, obviously. But here, our economy is being, our, our entire country is being completely flattened by COVID-19. And we have 6,000 personnel in the U.S. Uniformed Public Health Service. They're spread out across a dozen different agencies. They're spread out through the military, the Park Service, the CDC, Indian Health, Minority Health, Women's Health, Office of Population Affairs, Office of, I mean, they're just a scattering of them. And they're completely, <laughs> I'm not even sure they're aware of who, who each other uh, is. But we've had this enormous uh, expansion of, uh, of the mission of U.S. Public Health Service. After World War II, I think I've talked about this before, the CDC's actual name was, I can't remember what it literally was, but it was actually something to the effect of a, uh, you know, epidemic, uh, you know, a, a national health service against epidemics was essentially what it was. And it took squarely the proposition that things like, um, you know, polio and measles and, and other new diseases were a threat to national security, and that's what it was for. But later on, by the 80s and 90s and the OOs, uh, America got, uh, we, we became, um, well, I think we became, um, uh, shall we say, relaxed in our attitudes. We thought that vaccines had stopped all that. We didn't really worry about that. So we had all kinds of other public health missions uh, that we had to address and as a result, uh, we have very little in the in uh, with respect to public health leadership from the national government, virtually none. But it it, uh, it it intrigued me to know that the U.S. Public Health Service is one of our eight uh, uniform services, the smallest and the most decentralized. All right, enough of that. Right. We are going to go on <laughs> to uh, you had some news about India and, and uh, Foxconn. All right. So Foxconn is the company that produces all of Apple's products. They're a Taiwanese-based company, and most of their factories are in China. And they are moving the production of the iPhone 11 out of China and into India. Now, the iPhone 11 is Apple's flagship product right now, and they have never produced a flagship product outside of China. You know, India has been making previously the iPhone 6 and 7, not as, not as big of a product for them. And Apple and Foxconn, they're not really saying anything about this move, but there's quite a bit of speculation that this is being caused by the deteriorating relations between China and many countries around the globe, and they're trying to diversify where their factories are Yeah, because well, I think it's they don't know what's coming. Tim Cook trying to get on Trump's good side, right? Right. Um, and probably just regardless of Trump. I mean, it's kind of where the world's going. Um, exactly. Let's move on to Trump's... Um, intriguing foreign policy proposition, which is uh, taking troops out of Germany. Yeah, well, we had commented on this a few weeks ago, Neil, if you remember that he had brought <laughs> up the idea, but it is now officially happening. They are taking 12,000 U.S. troops out of Germany. Half of them are coming back to the U.S. and half are going to other countries. And this decision is going to cost somewhere around a billion dollars. Like This is a very expensive move. And he's actually getting quite a bit of flack from it from both Democrats and Republicans. You know, he says that Germany isn't paying their fair share of NATO expenses. Germany says they are and they're getting to the right point. But it seems to be kind of a strange move, in my opinion, politically, 
because Republicans aren't happy about it. So yeah, well, the same thing in Korea. Uh, right. So he's that's also on the table, moving troops out of Seoul. Out of Seoul, um, right. And here's what's amazing to me, right? We have two aircraft carriers, um, you know, right off the shore of China, you know, trying to uh, demonstrate our military capability when they're trying to, you know, encroach on uh, the the waters, the you know, water territorial rights for the countries there in South China Sea. Uh, we depend critically, if we're going to be credible in that area, on our allies like Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan. And yet, at the same time we're doing that, making ourselves vulnerable, trying to reach out, uh, we're, we're taking our troops out of South Korea. Uh, we also have the North Koreans to think about, right? So right. at one point, you begin to wonder, wait a sec, uh, what is our strategy there? Um, I, I, on the one hand, you can be like, um, like uh you know, like like Rand Paul. I mean, if you're if you're a true kind of Jeffersonian libertarian, you can just say, let's just get out of all of these areas of the countries. Just keep our Trident submarines. <laughs> I've heard <laughs> I've heard Rand Paul or his father used to talk about that. As long as we have nukes, you know, under the ocean, we just uh, don't bother with the rest of the world. Uh, that's a frightening thought. Uh, that's I guess our engagement, right? Just leave our nukes under the ocean. But okay, that would be then a coherent strategy. Uh, it may not make sense. It may be an insane strategy, but at least it would be logically consistent. This has no consistency at all. If we are going to challenge uh, China and the South China Sea, uh, why in the world wouldn't you want to make sure that we have support uh, from our allies there? And we're doing our Canada signal our support. Uh, uh, Senator Ben Sasse, who is a um, you know Republican in the Senate from Nebraska, and I quote him here. This kind of strategic incompetence is Jimmy Carter level weak. But Trump <laughs> Trump loves to deal. He just thinks that if people aren't obeying his orders, he just wants to make them suffer. And it really has nothing to do with saving money, I don't think. None of these things are going to save the U.S. money, right? Right. Um, right. There is an issue with free riding. Uh, it's an issue that all great powers have had. Uh, that try to remain great powers. Um, you know, Athens had it, you know, uh, b- before the uh, Peloponnesian War with the with the Aegean League. I mean, you know, it had it had uh, allies that didn't want to pay. <laughs> so, well, Athens had a much tougher way of dealing with it. They went in and invaded them, you know, and, and basically <laughs> threatened that they'd start, you know, killing all their males. Uh, but, you know, we don't we don't do that these days. But uh, it it it's always been an issue for for powers if if you are being protected by them and of course when does it become a protection racket uh, when does it become you know part of a genuine uh, supportive league I think there's no way in the world that we are at that point with Germany uh, they're obviously um, most Germans are actually a supportive of uh, the U.S. presence there but. You know, Trump doesn't like it, so he's going to try to go the other way. Obviously, this is going to be one of the signal differences if Biden comes in, because uh, Biden is, has, has been absolutely very uh, emphatic that he's going to do everything he can to try to bring allies together uh, to uh, bring a united front against Moscow or Beijing on, on issues where they have differences. So, you know, we'll see where that goes. Libya. We did want to uh, uh, continue on that one, didn't we? Yes, we did. So we we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the Libyan civil war, and we said Egypt had told all the parties involved if the Tripoli 
UN-backed government invades Sirte, they will invade Libya to push back the Turkish and Tripoli forces. Well, right now, Russia has 2,000 mercenary soldiers in the city of Sirte, and the Tripoli government is now surrounding the city with their own forces. So everyone's on eggshells just waiting for a battle to break out. You know, the reason Sirte is so important is it's kind of a gateway to a lot of the oil fields in Libya. And so there's a lot of question, will Sirte fall and will Egypt get involved? So that's just something to look out for. The battle's probably going to happen in the next week or so. Yeah, this is, uh, and there's probably, you know, not far beyond Sirte, there's really not much population going all the way to the Egyptian Egyptian border. Right. Um, Turkey is is interesting. It's getting much more aggressive, involved in other countries. It, it obviously is now occupying parts of of northern um, Syria. Uh, it has a, um, a, a, a there's a Turkish garrison in in Qatar. That's the more Islamist Gulf state, uh, and they're getting financial support. I understand Erdogan is uh, from you know some of the more Islamist or radical. Uh, rich with rich Gulf um, uh, uh, leaders. Uh, he's meddling in Yemen. Uh, he has a base in, in Mogadishu. Uh, the Turks do. They're they're building uh, new projects in Sudan. They're becoming more. Uh, I would say as the as the Arab world becomes less aggressive, and we can just kind of see that there's a little bit of a vacuum there. Uh, you know, the particularly the anti-Islamist. Uh, leaders in Saudi Arabia and part of the Gulf states and certainly Egypt are certainly making common cause now with Israel. You see a certain collapsing of the of the uh, of, of their aggressiveness, and I think Turkey is trying to be a Islamist, a little bit more radical Sunni uh, a power to reassert. Uh, Turkish influence in the Arab world, and let's not forget that before. World War One, uh, the Turks ruled the Arab Mideast for five centuries, right? I mean, this is the Ottomans. Uh, so they might be trying to reassert uh, their historic role uh, in, in governing the Mideast. Uh, an interesting sidelight on, um, on the reason why they're in Libya is apparently this UN-backed government in Tripoli has agreed just uh, has agreed to allow, I don't know whether they have the right to do this, but they've agreed to allow uh, uh, Turkey to drill for oil near Crete and, and even near near Cyprus. Of course, where the island is divided between Greeks and, and, and Turks, with Turks having a little enclave on the north of the island there. Well, it's completely unclear whether Libya has the power to do that. After all, Libya, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, Crete is, is, is Greek. I mean, it belongs to Greece. So Gr- Greece is completely outraged by this, right? Uh, as they are by most things that the Turks do. Uh, but but he- here you just have this as being a real mess. Uh, and obviously the EU doesn't want to get involved. Uh, but that brings us to the whole problem of EU, have the, the European Union having any uh, foreign policy. Keep in mind that Greece is an EU member. <laughs> Turkey is not, right? So the EU has, you know, put up a little bit of protest. Well, wait a second. We, we actually don't think this is quite right. You know, international law would specify, you know, the law of nations and, you know, let's go back to Grotius and, you know, and they'll have this long thing. But, you know, Turkey doesn't care. And uh, Turkey cer- 
certainly is years past trying to impress the European Union. Any, anyway, they're, they're never going to be a member of the European Union. But let's go. Speaking of the European Union, I, I do know we wanted to say something about the fiscal deal. Right. So I got some numbers for you here, Neil. The The EU's recovery fund is going to be 750 billion euros. Now, a little over half of that, 390 billion, will be given to countries as grants, but the rest of it will only be loans. Right. And, you know, the, these these uh, grants obviously will, in a sense, implicitly be assumed by all countries because all countries will have to pay back what the EU is right. borrowing. So that is a, a socialization, in a sense, right, of, um, mm. of, of expenses. It, it is... Um, it is not well. You could say there's been a lot of talk about the European Union having a Hamiltonian moment, right? So this is a reference in 1790 when Hamilton arranged that big deal. This was a famous uh, dinner he had with you know uh, Madison and Jefferson, uh, and arranged that deal whereby all of the colonies, the states uh, under the um, in, in the Continental Congress would agree to pay back all the debts to foreigners that they had that they had run up during the American Revolution. And of course, the South didn't want to do that because all the debt was in the North. <laughs> so why right. should the South pay all those debts? So it's a similar problem you have in the EU, right? So in, in this sense, you know, Germany would be like, you know, Virginia, you know, so why should we pay for all that stuff? And the way they did it was um, the the deal was, of course, that Washington D.C. would be the capital of the of the nation would be in the South, right? That's why our capital is not in Philadelphia. Anyway, that was the deal, and it was, of course, that was before we actually had a constitution. Well, it was, well, it wasn't actually before we had a constitution. It was the constitution was actually being implemented at that time, uh, but it was a very important uh, aspect of actually realizing. Uh, constitution and and sovereign national power. Uh, this is not a Hamiltonian moment, right? Uh, the the European Union is not assuming the the previous debts of all these countries. <laughs> that is absolutely never going to be in the cards, and they're only actually assuming a portion of these extraordinary um, pandemic expenses, right? Mm-hmm. A little insight from Italy. Uh, uh, Giuseppe Conte, uh, the you know the Italy's you know uh, uh, leader, prime minister, uh, c- claims it will be getting a uh, 2.0 trillion euros after after uh, a long time. This will be um, t- 209 billion euros. This will be uh, 81 in grants. Uh, the the total then handout I think is going to be 70 billion euros going to Italy. That's correct. 70 billion euros, because then the the northern countries get a rebate on their fiscal taxes. It's a very complicated transaction that came out of Brussels. Now, that's equivalent, uh, to, according to most estimates, to about 4.3% of GDP. Well, that's, that's fairly big. But remember, that's going to be over a number of years. And also, the northern countries get a veto on spending by projects. And you can imagine the, the, um, the Lega, you know, the populist uh, conservative party is going to be constantly parading around the fact that the, the, the Germans and the, 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 the Finns and the, the, the 
Dutch will be overseeing the appropriateness of every single way in which Italy will be spending its money and complaining about it, right? This is how Brussels is actually getting control over Italy. So they're going to make this an issue of national sovereignty. Uh, 4.3% of GDP is pretty big, but to put that in perspective, in the 1948 Marshall Plan of the U.S. money that went to Italy, uh, that was equivalent to about 8.3% of GDP, just the Marshall Plan funds that went to Italy. So large, but not historically large. And again, going to be spent over many years. I want to move on and talk a little bit about the 2020 election, uh, since it's been a few weeks. Um, the uh, Trump has made approval gains since the last time we were talking. Uh, his, his, um, his approval has gone up a little bit from 41.5 to 43.5. The disapproval has gone down from 56 to 54. So I would say rather than a gap of 14 percentage points, it's a gap of a little bit over 10 percentage points. So he's looking a little better there. Uh, I will say that the futures market has not changed. Uh, the futures market remains 61% for Biden, uh, 37% for Trump. If you think that Trump's chances are being undervalued, Guess what? You have an opportunity to make money. <laughs> go on, <laughs> go on to the predicted site and, and buy some Trump's futures. You know, I mean, if uh, particularly if the markets, financial markets haven't been kind to you, maybe the political markets will be. Um, the the other news was is that we're having a lot of uh, primary results, uh, uh, particularly from congressional districts, and it's very important for the Democrats. One of the big news that came in, pieces of news that came in the last couple of days, was that. Um, a longtime incumbent in the uh, uh, first congressional district in Missouri, which is in downtown St. Louis, this is Bill Clay, uh, was, you know, a longtime liberal progressive, um, age 89, was beaten by Cori Bush, a nurse and an activist, uh, a black woman. Bill Clay's black. Typically, this district has, has black representatives uh, who's age 44. And Cori Bush was supported by progressive groups like Brand New Congress and the Justice Democrats pushing highly progressive candidates. Clay was, Clay was progressive, but he took money from big corporations. Particularly, he incensed a lot of people because he supported local payday lenders. And you can imagine, you know, in a lot of urban neighborhoods, payday lenders probably are not beloved. Cori Bush is therefore going to enlarge the, she's almost certainly going to be elected, right? This is a heavily Democratic district. She will be enlarging the gang, right? We're talking about AOC and, you know, Presley and Omar and Tlaib, and uh, she's for Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage, universal benefit income, and also for defunding and dismantling police departments across the country. So this is She's basically a child of the um, of Black Lives Matter movement and and became very active uh, with the Michael Brown shooting and was down there in the actual demonstrations, got beaten up and, you know, tear gas several times. So this is a number uh, uh, representative, a number of younger, uh, very progressive Democrats who are kind of the the children of the Black Lives Matter movement, which started around the time of Trayvon Martin, uh, the shooting and, and, and the shooting of Michael Brown. So we're, so we're going to see that. And we have a number of other young progressive insurgents who won other primaries in similar circumstances in uh, just north of, uh, of Manhattan. We're talking about the Bronx, uh, parts of Westchester and Rockland counties. Jamail Bowman, 
Mondaire Jones, Richie Torres, and possibly another on Manhattan's east side. This is Suraj Patel. So these will not change the composition of the House, but it does show that a lot of older liberals, right, are exiting and they're being replaced by uh, late wave Xers, millennials, who are very progressive on these particular uh, social issues, certainly uh, on, you know, I would say not only social issues, but certainly economic issues. Um, so something to keep in mind, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about the significance of that uh, with uh, JT Taylor uh, on our call next week. Uh, in other news, we all know that uh, Trump has said many times he's not sure he will accept the results of the fall election. <laughs> you can remember. I think, I think Trump says that just because he knows that sends shudders, you know, down, <laughs> down, down the spines of all of all the Democrats. Uh, I think that's his way of instilling a certain kind of terror. And who knows? Maybe he half means it. I think he just does it for the effect. Uh, he's not surely accepting. He says, yeah, yeah, I know you guys keep answering, asking me that, but I don't know if I'll accept, you know. Anyway, he does that. But here's the interesting thing. And this is a fascinating report that came out of the Transition Integrity Project. This is a bipartisan anti-Trump organization, which shows that the left also may not accept <laughs> the results of the fall election, depending on what they are. Uh, now, the Transition Integrity Project was created in 2019, and, and I'll quote them from their website here. And it, by the way, it's got a lot of Republican anti-Trumpers, and it certainly has some, um, you know, some Obama, you know, holdover Obama people and some Hillary Clinton people. Uh, they're obviously very, very anti-Trump, um, you know, but a little bit bipartisan. But here's what they say on their website. They, they created themselves, quote, out of concern that the Trump administration may seek to manipulate, ignore, undermine, or disrupt the 2020 presidential election and transition process. And they, if you're interested, go to this group, uh, Transition Integrity Project. They, they have a report which outlines four scenarios, and they're almost science fiction-y uh, in, in what they look like. Most of these scenarios assume, and by the way, I think they assume correctly, that November 3rd will not result in an election night but could result in an election season, given the huge volume of mail ballots, right? So a lot of these, a lot of these ballots by mail, it may take days or weeks and imagine close, close results, right? They may be looking at these things. There could be hanging chads. There'll be a lot of uh, uh, charges of stuffing and validation. By the way, we already know in the primary elections that invalidation is a big issue. You know, a lot of them say, well, it wasn't signed correctly. It wasn't, well, wait a second. You're, you know, this is a partisan move. There could be violence in the streets. Uh, governors may intervene to demand different slates of electors. They may overrule uh, what's given to them. They may say, "No, this was uh, this was misleading. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna submit a different state of a slate of electors." You can see where this could go. Uh, this could be a mess, resembling the only episode like it in American history was the 1876 election of uh, Rutherford B. Hayes against Samuel Tilden, where many states, a lot of these were, you know, newly, you know, old Confederate states coming back into the Union, huge charges of irregularity in, in the election results. And uh, many governors uh, were actually submitting separate um, um, uh, voting results and separate groups of electors. It was a complete mess. It had to be brokered in the House of Representatives, and it resulted in a deal whereby basically Samuel Tilden, who won the popular vote, 
stood down, agreed he wouldn't he wouldn't accept the presidency. Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, would get the presidency, but in return, the Republicans agreed to what? To discontinue Reconstruction. So that was the deal, right? So here comes, here's a quote from this recent report. Uh, this is the Transition Integrity Project. And this is one of their, um, this is one of their scenarios. The Biden campaign also came up with, they're writing about this as history, right? This has already happened. Mm -hmm. The Biden campaign, after agreeing that they actually probably couldn't win, like they'd be in the position of Samuel Tilden, right? Agreeing they probably couldn't win, uh, also came up with what appears to be a demand for concessions in exchange for recognition of Trump's victory, okay? Trump could take office if the Electoral College were eliminated, Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico were given statehood, and California were divided into five states to create more Democratic senators. <laughs> Otherwise, <clears throat> if they did not agree, California, Oregon, and Washington State would secede from the Union. In the end, the standoff remained unresolved, quote-unquote, and Inauguration Day, quote, arrived without a single president-elect, unquote. The scenario ends with, quote, it was unclear what the military would do in this situation, unquote. So... If you really want to get scared about where we might go in, in 2020, there you have it. All right. To get even weirder, let's move on to a very important development. <laughs> if things couldn't get weirder, Kanye West <laughs> is running for president. Uh, his running mate will be Michelle Tidball, a Russian preacher from Wyoming. Um, and uh, uh, she will be the vice presidential candidate. Uh, uh, Kanye West describes her as a, quote, biblical life coach. Interesting. Biblical life coach. Uh, Kanye West is no longer supporting Donald Trump, uh, although he had long said they shared the same dragon energy. That's right. They share the same dragon energy. <laughs> so what is Kanye's platform? Well, it's an interesting mix of pro-Christian and pro-black. Uh, West says he will run the U.S. like the country of Wakanda from the movie Black Panther. But obviously, Democrats are worried about West playing a spoiler role. And it's telling that he's already missed uh, deadlines for filing in, in many states, but hopes to get onto the ballot in swing states like Wisconsin, where he just filed, and Ohio, uh, the New York Times has uh, put a lot of investigative reporting into this and reports that he's getting help from Republican operatives and lawyers. Uh, the New York Times uh, reports also that West is well connected with the uh, White House uh, through Jared Kushner and others. And, and that's where he's getting, you know, with the, the lawyers and the accountants to help him get all this stuff done. I don't know. We'll see where this goes. Uh Friends and his wife, uh, Kim Kardashian West, are worried about Kanye's mental health, his emotional health. Uh, but it's unclear uh, they have the power to stop him. Um, fascinating phenomenon, but I think Democrats are worried. I mean, imagine Kanye West running in Ohio and Wisconsin and Michigan uh, in a reasonably close election. Well, I don't know. He might get a lot of you you ask me uh you t you tell i should say you tell me christian yeah a lot of millennials go into the voting booth and they see kanye west's name and they say well that sounds kind of cool i don't know uh what do you think 
You know, I think the people who generally vote and pay attention will ignore it, but I could see a group of people, you know, those internet trolls out there going into the voting booth and think they're making a joke, and I could see them getting votes. I would not be surprised. Well, you say the people who vote and are paying attention. Um, that paying <laughs> attention might really restrict suddenly the population you're talking about. But <laughs> fascinating. Um, we do have another story, which unfortunately, you know, we always get this way. We get to our serious stuff. Uh, I, I do want to do this story. We'll do it. Um, we might not be able to do it next week because we have uh, James T. Taylor. We'll, we'll certainly do it the week after. It's a very important subject. It's the... Um, uh, a new projection came out, a very large effort uh, from a, a group at the University of Washington uh, that came up with a completely new uh, projection for a global population through the year 2100. This now competes with the gold standard for demographers. This is the uh, UN Population Division forecast, and it predicts, it, I say predicts, quote-unquote, uh, that global population decline will occur much sooner than in the UN forecast. Uh, instead of uh, peaking in the year 2100, it will peak some, you know, 33, 34 years earlier, uh, and it will peak at a much lower level. And I do want time to go through this. This is, you know, I feel a little guilty here, Christian. This is demography proper. <laughs> I should be, I should be doing this stuff. Uh, but it's fascinating. Uh, and it, 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 to tell the story of this projection and what's behind it. <clears throat> is really to consider uh, the 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 deep story of of what are the drivers of fertility around the world, uh, and how they may change, and how best we could, uh, how best we are able at this point to predict which way they're going to move one way or the other. So uh, look for that coming up. We will do that. Uh, meanwhile, this this um, this world is just too exciting. We got sidetracked with other events, but we will do that one. Meanwhile, stay stay tuned for for next Tuesday. A lot of that should be politics. A lot of that should be looking at uh, what's going to happen in Congress uh, over the next couple of weeks and where we're going with the 2020 election. So until then, thanks for listening to this week's Demography Unplugged. Talk to you again next week. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else. Deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration. That's H-O-W-E Generation. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial 
financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.